as we were wrapping up in the last series here at Compass, in the letter to the Colossians, we interact with verse 9. And here we have Paul uh, talking about Tychicus and how he has delivered this letter to the Colossians. And with him uh, now enters a, a new character, a new historical figure uh, in this letter. And the name of this character is Onesimus. Now, the importance for us when we look at the name Onesimus, we're going to miss it if we read Colossians and don't understand historically, and even in the breadth of the New Testament, how these are connected elsewhere. And that's why this morning, for the first time in our church's history, and probably the last time, we'll go through the whole letter of a New Testament epistle in an hour and 50 minutes. I'm kidding. I'll do it, and I'll try to do it less than that. Uh, but we're going to jump into the letter of Philemon. And so if you would, uh, flip open the New Testament to the letter to Philemon, because it's going to be in that letter where we find the true meaning of verse 9, when it says, And with him I have Philemon, and they will tell you of everything that has happened here. It's very important when we look at the rest of verse 9, because it says there's some things that have happened here that you need to know about. Uh, for you, a little bit of contextual background as you're flipping to Philemon, uh, Onesimus is a very peculiar character in the life of the Colossian church because Onesimus is a runaway slave. Onesimus stole from Philemon and his family, took money and means, and fleed to what we and scholars expect to be Rome, where he met Paul. And so you can uh, believe, as Tychicus comes into Colossae with a letter of Colossae, and, or the letter to the Colossians, and a letter to Philemon, and with him he also has the runaway slave Onesimus, who ran away some time ago, that they thought they would never hear from again. And here we are, in a very awkward, tension-filled situation, where there is Philemon and the family, the Colossian church, Tychicus with a big smile on his face, and Onesimus probably hunkered down in the back saying, I have no idea what I just got myself into. Uh, because in the Roman times, uh, to be a runaway slave meant a lot of bad things. As a matter of fact, you could not only have the death penalty, but if you were spared from the death penalty as a runaway slave uh, in Roman time periods, you were at least either going to be imprisoned or uh, severely punished. Now, before you get the idea of, well, why in the world did Paul not condemn slavery? And why didn't, you know, what, what's going on? And why are we talking about a slave as though that's the bad person? Uh, we have to understand, and you can at least understand in our context, historically speaking, what you and I are familiar with, and I've done a podcast on this, if you want to go back to our Compass Equip podcast and learn a little bit more about biblical slavery, slavery in uh, Greco-Roman cultures versus what we would call antebellum slavery, or the slavery that you and I learned about in school, there's quite the differences here. Uh, because slavery, although not condemned in Scripture was by no means endorsed. It was what we would call tolerated. But let me tell you what was not tolerated in Christian circles and even in the Old Testament with Hebrews who were underneath the old covenants of God. What was not tolerated scripturally was what we call man-stealers or what we would say as enslavers. As a matter of fact, I believe it's in First Peter, I think. Maybe somebody check me on that. Uh, it says that enslavers are an abomination to God. That is, these are things that you ought not to be or are deplorable to God, and that is what they call an enslaver. And that is someone who purchased, or I would say stole someone to exploit them for what they could offer. Now, that was what we would call antebellum slavery, where people were stolen and people were brought and exploited. And that, the New Testament completely condemns. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about that. However, uh, Greco-Roman slavery was quite a bit different. As a matter of fact, almost all of society in Rome was very acquainted with slavery. Uh, it's been said that maybe perhaps up to 90% of people were involved in the slave system in Roman society, whether they were, had been a slave or were a slave. Uh, that's a lot of people, 9 in 10. That means most of you in this room would have been very acquainted with the institution of slavery in that culture. Now, within that culture... 
Uh, Christians even had a higher bar, right? We have the secular bar, which is often here, even in our culture, the secular bar is here. Then there was a biblical standard of how we ought to treat uh, people. Uh, and as you, uh, as you followed along with me in the letter of Colossians in chapter 3, we learned about bondservants and masters. Because that's what Onesimus was in the context of Scripture, was a bond servant. That is, he is someone uh, who worked and he was a slave. He was, he was under the authority of his master, in this context Philemon, uh, but he also had money set aside for him. Right? And that could mean the very money that was stolen when he was a runaway slave. And this was set aside, and over a number of years he would have his freedom Philemon would have given him his money, and he would have been a freed man. At least that is a uh, regularly uh, uh, occurring event there in uh, the Greco-Roman time period when it comes to bond servants, or people who sold themselves, kind of like you and I would be contractually uh, signing contracts to do work in the same way. That is what a bond servant is, and that's why if you read the ESV translation, uh, it will say that... Uh, he was a bond servant, because contextually, that's what I mean. Now, all that aside, just because in our culture, you got to explain all that, or you're going you're gonna to lose you through the whole sermon. So now we get to the sermon, okay? Uh, it's important for us to know that's, the, that's where we find Onesimus, Philemon, and Paul. And what Onesimus had done is he had stolen from Philemon, he had ran to Rome, and under God's sovereign hand, Onesimus runs into the apostle Paul. Uh, and uh, they obviously probably knew each other or knew of one another because Philemon, the master of Onesimus, was led to Christ by Paul. And so was Epaphras, the person who planted the church in Colossae. So everyone knew of Paul, uh, and a lot of them were converted to Christ because of Paul. And so Onesimus runs into Rome, somehow runs into Paul, whether on purpose or on accident. And in that moment, Right? Obviously, Onesimus is in great sin. Uh, he's um, in disobedience to his, his home and, his, uh, and Philemon. And he goes and he encounters the gospel of Jesus Christ. He goes and hears the gospel. And Paul converts him. He turns from his sins, trusts in Christ. And now they sit here and say, well, what happens next? Which is the place you and I sit every single day as Christians. Right? If you're a Christian in here, you have come to the graciousness of Christ and to the presence of Christ where you understand that you are a sinner, that you need to turn from your sins and trust in Christ. That's the only way to God. Onesimus has done that, and if you've done that in here, and you've turned from your sins, and you've trusted in Christ, every single day from here on out, you have the same question. Now what? What do I do now? There's things in my life that need to change. There's things in my life that need to be fixed, and there's relationships in my life that need to be reconciled. Onesimus found himself in that exact situation. And the letter to Philemon resolves this in a very godly, biblical way that involved the whole church in Colossae, and this morning is what you and I are going to study as we jump into Philemon. And so what we can rest assured to, uh, because when you read this, you're going to have to make some implications, and one of the implications that you must make as a Christian is after this reconciliation happened, it worked. That is, Philemon and Onesimus and the church in Colossae reconciled, and they were in great relationship. The reason I can tell you that is because People wouldn't have kept it for hundreds and hundreds of years if, that was, if they got together and they started punching each other and pulled the sword and stabbed each other. This, would, this letter wouldn't be in the New Testament because they said, well, that didn't work. Okay? So the proof of the, in the, is in the pudding is the fact that the letter is in existence and church, the early church fathers have been using this throughout all of history and even us today as the proof of reconciled relationships in the body of Christ. And I want you to first look at verse 6, because what I want you to do is we look at how to reconcile relationships and how to fully embrace the transformation the gospel brings in all of our relationships, regardless how bad your relationships are, how torn your relationships are, how bad you think your relationships are. Within the context of Christian brothers and sisters, uh, what we need to understand is God's grace and mercy is enough and is sufficient and is more than enough to reconcile all our relationships. But what I want you to do is I want you to look at verse 6. I want you to look at verse 6 because Paul defines exactly how uh, he and Philemon and Onesimus can come together under the guise of Christian, I shouldn't say guise, under the reality of the Christian community and the Christian fellowship that they share. Look at verse 6. Paul sends this letter there to Colossae, and this is what he says. This is the, uh, the theme verse, if you want to underline. Well, what is the theme verse of Philemon? Verse 6 is the theme verse. You can underline that. Uh, here's what it says, verse 6. 
And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, what I want you to do, if you see that word sharing, I want you to underline that word sharing in your Bible or on your note sheet. Verse 6, and I pray that the sharing of your faith, underline that. Uh, I love evangelism. I'm a, I'm a big, big uh, proponent of evangelism. You need to be sharing the gospel with your family. You need to be sharing the gospel in your community. Uh, you need to be sharing the gospel every opportunity you have. But I'm going to be the first to tell you that verse 6 has nothing to do with sharing the gospel. Verse 6 has nothing to do with you and me going and sharing the gospel with, with anybody. You see, the Greek word for sharing in verse 6 is the word koinonia. It's the word koinonia, and it's an important word because we see it twice here in the letter to the Colossians, and we see it six, five or six times in the letter to the Philippians, okay? And this word means fellowship, participation, communion, the sharing of. And, and so it's hard in our English to come up with the one word that koinonia means because it means all of them. Right. We're not talking about me telling you the good news of Jesus Christ, which obviously if you're a part of a community and you're a part of fellowship, those things are going to happen, but it's a small part of it. You see, the key to the word koinonia is this, that you and I have been purchased by the very blood of Christ, and that's the very thing that connects you and I. And so the communion and the fellowship that you and I have is in Christ. That is, you and I have a participation in the body of Christ, and it is available to us because of the body of Christ. You understand what I'm saying. We are all members of a body of Christ, and we have that privilege because of the very body, death, and resurrection of Christ. So I want you to see the word is chalked full, is pregnant, if you will, with meaning and significance. It's not a word you can brush over because Paul is appealing to this very concept when he talks to Philemon about why you need to reconcile with Onesimus. He says this one reason, because of the koinonia, because of the fellowship that you have, so that, verse 6, your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Did you hear that? Did you get that? Paul is looking at Philemon and saying, listen, you turned from your sins, you've trusted in Christ, you've been reconciled to God. While you were still a sinner, you were reconciled to God. But you need to understand that the reconciliation you have from God ought to play out in your relationships with one another. And so if you have this fellowship that you say you do, that you've committed to in Christ, then you better know that it doesn't just stop with you and God. It extends to the people of God. It extends to this reality that the way that you participate in this church, the way that you participate with one another, that people may come to the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. You know what's in it? You know where the good things are for the sake of Christ? The reconciliations of sinners to a holy God. You know how people can see that in real time? The reconciliations of sinners and sinners. Right? If sinners and sinners who have been reconciled by Christ can't resolve conflict, why would anybody be able to look at this kind of situation and expect that a perfect holy God would have a sinner to be theirs? If we can't even have sinners who look at each other and say, I get it, I'm a sinner too. Let's reconcile to these things. Paul is appealing to this, the, the understanding that Philemon knows that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. The least you can do is look another sinner in the eyes and say, let's reconcile. Let's make this right. And he appeals to that one common understanding of koinonia, fellowship, participation, the communion, the communion that we both have. It's our responsibility together to display the glory and the majesty of God. He doesn't just stop there. Look at verse 17. He's talking about the mutual faith that he shares with the whole church in Colossae. Uh, but I want to take you to verse 17 because now he begins appealing to something much more intimate. He begins appealing to Paul's very relationship with Philemon. In verse 16 it says this, So if you consider me your partner, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. Partner, underline that word again. I want you to take notes. You should be taking notes, right? Underline that word partner. You know what word that is? You guessed it, koinonia. It's the same Greek word. And so what he's appealing to now is he's saying, listen, you understand that the church is mutual participants in this Christian life together, and you guys are connected through the very blood of Jesus Christ. And you and I, brother, you love me, you know me. You need to understand something about Paul. Remember, Paul led Philemon to Christ. If it wasn't for Paul, Philemon would have no fellowship in the body of believers. And it's the very fact that Paul 
shared the gospel with him, brought him into that community that he has the fellowship that he has. And that's why in verse 17, you, it says this, if you consider me your partner, if you consider me the participation in this community, the, if you consider me and you as part of this fellowship, you would receive him as you receive me. It's a strong word. Okay? That'd be equivalent to you having your best friend come up to you. Your best friend comes up to you, and then your best friend comes up to you with your biggest enemy. And he has his arm around them, and he says, listen, they repented. They're a Christian now. And they came here because they want to make things right. And if you call me your best friend, you're going to treat this person, your worst enemy, the person you hate more than anyone on earth, the same way that you would treat me. You're going to love him the same way that you love me. If you consider me your best friend, you're going to consider them your best friend. Do you see that? Do you know how strong this is? And that's exactly the tone of this letter here. Paul's saying, listen, if you love me, if you love the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're going to love this sinner. You're going to love this sinner turned saint who has need to reconcile his relationship with you, and you're going to do it. And you know why they're going to do it? Because they have a mutual fellowship in the body of Christ. They have a mutual communion through the death of of Christ, through the resurrection, through the glorification of Christ, I know that my connection with every single one of you in here who've turned from your sins and trusted with Christ is not because you call Compass Bible Church home. It's not because you're in the congregation of me, your pastor. It's not because we both live in New Braunfels. It's because of one thing, and that is the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection of Christ. That is our mutual participation. And so everything else other than that is secondary. That means every single thing I deal with can be dealt with in light of the resurrected Christ. And every single relationship, every single division, every single complication in all my relationships can be dealt with in light of the common communion that we have while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. If he can do that, then the least that we can do in our common communion with one another through Christ is reconcile our relationships. That's a theological implication, isn't it? Theological. Let me show you the practical implications that Paul begins pouring out in verse 7. Go back to verse 7, or go down to verse 7. I guess up to verse 7 at this point. We're gonna, if you have uh, vertigo or anything, just, we're going to be looking up and down a lot, so just take your time. Verse 7. In verse 7 it says, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed. There's another word. Underline the word refreshed. It's a good word, right? Why? Because some people like that word because you can make it mean whatever you want. And I don't want to make it mean whatever it wants. I just want it to mean what the Bible says it means, okay? And that word is so good for us because that word refreshed means to give rest, right? That word refreshed means that you have given the saints rest, right? And that's what Paul says, my heart has been just full because you have refreshed the saints. Their hearts have been refreshed through you, which means this, that Philemon has been such a member of that church in Colossae that people would look at him and say, that guy gives me rest. When I'm around Philemon, it gives me rest. I mean, you ever have people in those, those kind of people in your life where you like, you make time to go home and hang out with those people because they give you rest? Like you're willing to wake up a little extra early on a certain day to go with those people and hang out with them. You're willing to stay out a little bit later to hang out with these people because you know when you're around them, they give you rest. Okay, maybe you don't have any of those people. You have the other people, though, the ones you try to avoid because they make you exhausted. Right? The kind of people that you don't want to be around because they have this ability to get on your nerves all the time. Right? You know those people. Well, Philemon wasn't that kind of guy. Philemon was the kind of guy that was refreshed he was refreshing, and he refreshed the hearts of all the people he was around in Colossae. And look at verse 20. Paul, again, is appealing to this idea that, Philemon, you're a great church member. That's, that's really what Paul's saying. You, you're a great church member, Philemon. Like, you literally, you, you do it right. You're saved. I mean, you're serving. Like, you're, you're just, you're, you're in community. I mean, you're doing all these great things, and you are such an example of a godly man in the church. Then he also comes back to the personal relationship, right? Remember I told you verse 17, he said, Paul said, if you consider me your partner. And then again, in verse 20, he, he appeals back to their personal relationship in verse 20. He says, so brother, I want some benefit from you. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul then tells Philemon, you need to give my heart rest. You know why Paul needed his heart rested? 
You know why Paul needed Philemon to give him some rest? Because as Paul's in prison in Rome, him, because he knows Scripture, right, because he knows the call that he has to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and he knows the need for reconciliation, after he led Onesimus to Christ, he says, there's only one thing to do after this. you got to go home. You got to go home and you got to go make things right with the church in Colossae. You got to make things right with Apphia. You got to make things right with Philemon. You got to make things right with Archippus, which is the people this letter was written to. And it says you got to make things right with the church there in Colossae. Paul knew it. And so you can imagine, even in Paul's heart, he's like, My prayer is that Philemon continues acting like the Christian that he said he is. My hope and prayer is that Philemon continues acting like the man of God that I know he is. Because he's sending a runaway slave back home as a brother in Christ, not knowing whether or not, hoping, expecting, believing because of their mutual faith, that when Onesimus gets there, that Philemon is going to do what good Christian people do in the midst of conflict and division and relationships. We don't know if that happened yet, do we? But we know that's the ex expectation because our relationships with one another should give us rest. And you know where that comes from? Quickly, I want you to flip to Acts 3. If you don't want to flip there, you can at least write it down on your note sheet. But flip to Acts 3. Right. We know it's our job to give each other rest. If you're a Christian in here, you can look at the other Christian across the aisle and say, it's your job to give me rest. It is. And, so, and the problem with that is that so many times we find unrest in the church, and the very job of the church is to give one another rest. And here's why. Acts 3, in verse 17, says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. This is, a, this is the testimony after they crucified Christ there in the beginning of Acts. And it says, But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. All right, so we understand that Christ suffered and died because of the, the, because of the foreknowledge of God to bring people to repentance and faith. And that's what it says in verse 19. Right? Christ died, and the, the fact of the matter is you've got to do this. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Okay, there's the response that anyone should have to the gospel message of Christ. Right? If, if you say you're a Christian in here, then you're telling me there's a time in your life you turned from your sins and you trusted in Christ. Right? If you say you're a Christian and you've never done those things, I, I don't know, we don't call that Christianity. The Bible doesn't call that Christianity. Christianity is those who've turned from their sins and trusted in Christ. Now here's the good news and the outcome of those who've turned from their sins and trusted in Christ. Verse 20. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Remember what does refresh means? What does it mean? Rest. It means rest. Do you know what we can do when we're in Christ? Rest. Do you know what I'm not having to do when I'm in Christ? Work for my salvation. Not go to bed every night wondering if I'm going to go to heaven or I'm going to go to hell. Not wondering every single day if the very thing that I did that messed up takes me out of the grace and mercy of God. I never have to do that because I'm rest. I'm in rest. I've been refreshed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I never have to wonder about that. You know why? My koinonia with Christ. My mutual fellowship and mutual participation with Christ. I don't, no longer have to worry about those things because I have rest in him. Do you see what just happened there? And that same refreshing that we see in Acts is the same refreshing that we ought to have with brothers and sisters in Christ because of our mutual fellowship with Christ. I put it this way in point number one on your outline. I want you to take notes. I want you to write this down. You need to comprehend your communal connection. You need to comprehend your communal connection. I mean, this, this very reality that according to Acts 3... That when I turn from my sins and I trust in Christ, and I trust in the fact that, that he was the substitutionary atonement for me, that he was substituted, his righteousness given to me, my wretchedness given to him, me recognizing that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I turn from my sins, I trust in Christ, I accept his righteousness, I'm then clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and I am not my own, I've been bought with a price, I'm now his, I have rest. And it stands to reason, not just logically, but biblically, especially when I read Philemon, when you walk through these doors and you walk into life group or you walk into any place that bears the name church, 
and it better be any door you walk through that is called Compass Bible Church, where when you walk in here, you find the saints refreshing one another. Because to give rest, you have to know what rest is. And to know what rest is, you need to know Christ. And when you know Christ and you know what rest is, you can give rest to other people. And you need to understand that, and it can only be understood by you first comprehending your communal connection. I think one of the biggest lies that we're told in the church in the 21st century is uh, your faith is, about, is, is between you and God. Right? Uh, it's, it's, just, it's, it's a personal faith that has nothing to do with anyone else. It's, it's all about you and God. Right? It's one of the biggest lies, and the reason it's the biggest lies is because the early church knew nothing about this kind of faith that didn't, belo- that didn't, that didn't belong to the whole church. Right? There was no such thing uh, in the early church as this individual, individualistic faith. Do you know why it wasn't in the early church? Because it wasn't in the Bible, right? It wasn't in Scripture. Scripture knows nothing of the individualistic faith that we mark our faith by in, in our church in the 21st century. The Bible says nothing about those kind of things. Our faith is a communal faith, right? Our faith is a faith that is about the people of God, Right? It's about the ecclesia, those who have been called out. I get it. You're like, well, isn't it a personal relationship? Sure it is. Right? But here's how I say it. It's a personal relationship with communal implications. It's a personal relationship with communal implications. It means this. You don't do anything on an island as a Christian. Um, there's a lot of nuclear tests that go, that go out on the, some islands uh, in the Pacific Ocean, right? You've probably heard of these. It happens ever since the uh, 1900s. There's these atomic bombs that they test out there, and they tell us, they tell us uh, that it's not supposed to harm anyone, okay? There's instances, the Marshallese Islands, you can tell that it has. Obviously, they had to ship, oh, that's another whole other thing, whatever. The point about it is that they do these atomic bombs way out in the middle of nowhere so that when they go off, it's not going to hurt anyone. And every single, most Christians think that way about their faith, right? I'm in an island, so if something goes wrong, if I'm in sin, or if I don't reconcile relationships, or if I don't live my life the way Scripture tells me to, I'm an island, and it just, it just affects me. The Christian faith is more like an atomic bomb going off in Manhattan, right? The, uh, when a bomb goes off in Manhattan, it affects millions of people, right? That's the understanding of the Christian faith in the Bible, that nothing you do is on an island. It's a communal implication type of relationship. That whatever happens in your life impacts the church. You don't believe me yet? Have you ever had a conversation with somebody trying to lead them to Christ? And you preach the gospel and you're trying to tell them about Jesus. And they stop you and they say, well, I was hurt by someone in the church. Anybody ever had that conversation? Or I don't want to go to church with you because, uh, you know, uh, they, they, this person that said they were a Christian in school also made fun of me and bullied me. Anybody? Anybody had similar conversations to that? There's your proof of the fact that your decisions have communal implications. Right? You don't live on an island in your Christian faith, which means your reconciliation with other Christians and other believers isn't just a personal decision. It's a communal decision. It's, a, it's something with communal implications, and we have to be aware of them. And Paul knew very well that exact situation when he sent Philemon back to Colossae to reconcile with Onesimus and Apphia and Archippus and the church. Three verses just really quick. I just want to give them to you. you don't, we're not going to flip to them. You can jot them down if you can uh, write fast enough. I just want to show you in Scripture, Scripture has nothing, it says nothing about this idea of an individualistic church, individualistic faith without communal implications, but it says the other often and over and over again, how you and I, our faith is inextricably linked together. Our koinonia, our mutual participation is so connected as is our relationship with Christ. Romans 12.5. Romans 12.5 says this, so we Though many, well, there, there, there it is, There's your, if, you, if you want to hit some individualistic terminology, right, where many are one body in Christ. Do you hear that? There's a lot of us. There is one body. And individually, members, there's, there's your word individually, but what are we? Members of one another. Did you hear that? You may be an individual, but your individuality builds into us as one another in the church. 
That's why I say you have to understand your communal connection. And if you don't look at Scripture and understand that we're all linked together through the blood of Christ, you're going to miss the whole joy, the whole fullness of the love that we get to share together in Christ in the local church. Because if you don't understand your communal connection, the first thing that happens that you don't agree with, the first conflict that you arise, you're going to run like Onesimus. You're going to run away. You're going you're to leave it. You don't want anything to do with it. But once Onesimus understood the communal connection you have with the body of Christ, he went running back to fix the problem. And all I'm saying is that is the Christian faith. We're all members of one another. Galatians 6.2 says, you want to fulfill the law of Christ? Galatians 6.2, here's how you fulfill the law of Christ. Don't you, want to, don't you always want to know what the will of God is? Everyone in here, sometimes, every day you wake up and say, what is the will of God? Well, here it is, says it right here. You want to fulfill the law of Christ Bear one another's burdens. Nah, that's it, plain and simple. Every single day you can wake up, and if you would be a burden bearer for the brothers and sisters of Christ, you know for a fact you can go to bed that night knowing that you were in the will of God. I mean, again, this idea that we have to be burden bearers. And when somebody reaches out and needs a hand, when somebody needs you, you are a burden bearer. Right? You, you give them rest. Right? You don't give them angst and anxiety, which is many of us. That's what we do in the church. There's people who walk in, and I'm like, there they are. There they are. You know, there they are. And if you give your pastor that kind of angst, imagine what you do to other people. I'm, I'm kidding, <laughs> kind of. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. For just as the body is one and has many members... In all the members of the body, though many, right, we again, we understand that we are individual people making commitments to Christ through turning from our sins and trusting Christ. We get those things, right? We get it. We're many. We are one body. So it is with Christ. We are one body in Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And I get it, right? What does that mean? Remember, baptized means what? Baptizo, which means Placed into, so let's go ahead and take that transliterated word, take placed into, and put it there in verse 13. For in one spirit, that is the spirit of God, right? God the spirit, we were all placed into one body. Didn't that make a lot more sense when you read it that way? Right? We were all placed into one body, every one of us. It doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, it even qualifies it by saying Jews or Greeks. Slaves, Onesimus, free Philemon. All of them, everyone. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Do you see the mutualism that we share in Christ? Right? There is no ethnicity. There is no geography. Anything that separates us from the common communion that we have in Christ. And there's nothing that elevates you. Being a, being a, a master, being a slave did not elevate you in the church of God over one above the other. Being male, being female didn't elevate you in the church. It did not. It didn't elevate you. Nothing, none of the distinguishing marks of society and culture elevated a single person above one another in God's church. And why can we trust and believe in that? Because we understand and we comprehend our communal connection. That Jesus didn't save me because I'm a man, and Jesus didn't save you because you were a woman. Jesus didn't save me because I was an American, and he didn't save you because you were from Asia. He saved us by grace, through faith, and it was no work of our own. It was a gift from God. And that gift is given to all people and all nations regardless. You hear that? This is why we can understand, when we understand our communal connection, we can move forward in the church and we can reconcile because we know that we all are connected together through the blood and the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Here's your foundation. And in 20 minutes, I'll get you through the rest of the sermon. I want to give you the way to solve all your disagreements, all of your disputes, and all of your division. I didn't say a way, right? Go to, go to your self-help section in the book to find a way. I'm going to give you the way to resolve your disputes, your disagreements, and your divisions. The way, the single way. There is one way, and it'll work 100% of the time when you do it the way. And Paul starts with it in verse 3, even as he begins and opens the letter. Look at Philemon, and look at verse 3. 
He says in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When you read a lot of the letters to the churches, you see something similar to that. Grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ our Lord. And you are so quick, like I am, to read past it and get to the point. And you don't realize you missed the point. If you miss verse 3, you miss the whole point. You miss the way if you miss verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know why we can reconcile? Do you know why you and I know the way to fix disputes, divisions, and disagreements in our lives? Because we have grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know the church is the sole proprietor of the grace and peace from God? Not another institution, an organization in the entire world has the grace and peace of God. You know why? You have no peace with God outside of Christ. Christ is our peace. Right? For those who are far off, Christ brought us near, and he is our peace. You know what grace is? Do you remember the definition of grace? Unmerited favor. Right? We get unmerited favor, which is the grace of God in Christ, and in Christ we have peace. Isn't that what the world wants? They want peace. They want unity. They want the unmerited favor of others. We have that in Christ. And you ask, well, what is that? how does that give us the way? Because you were given the unmerited favor of God and given the peace of Christ, you ought to be number one in your class in reconciling relationships. Because you have the unmerited favor of God and the peace through the blood of Christ, nobody should know the cost of reconciliation and the need for reconciliation more than you. Because at one point in your life, and hopefully every day afterwards, you've been on your knees and you recognize and realize in the deepest recesses of your heart that the only reason that God is pleased with you is through Christ. And there is nothing in your life that was pleasing to God outside of Christ. And you recognize that you have always been the problem. And Christ has always been the solution. And so when you do have divisions with somebody else, you recognize that their dispute with you is very minor compared to the dispute that you had with a holy, just God. We see that. Now my problems with my friends aren't so bad anymore, are they? It's exactly how we ought to look at the need for reconciliation in the church Because while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Romans 5.10. You and I should be the best individuals, the best souls in the universe at reconciling relationships. Because we understood what it took for us to be reconciled. And it was in this way. That Christ reconciled us while we were still sinners. That is this, that he didn't wait for you to come up to him and spill all your dirty laundry and open all of your closets for all the skeletons to go out for him to extend the offer of forgiveness and pay the price for it. But our problem, most of the time in our relationships, is we're not willing to budge unless the other person comes first. Can you imagine that kind of reconciliatory work if Christ did it that way? I'll come to you, but you come to me first. I have the power to save, but you got to come to me first. Isn't that what all the other religions say? But you don't say you don't believe that. But practically, do you? Do you practically believe that that's how reconciliation works? You need to come first, make things right with me, and then I'll, I'll, give, you the, the, I'll give you some grace, which it isn't grace, because grace is unmerited favor. To give grace, you have to do something that isn't merited, that isn't earned. And reconciliation is a very unmerited situation. As Christians, our whole lives are governed by grace and peace. And if we can't create grace and peace in our relationships, we have no business talking about the gospel. We have no business saying that we're a part of the church of God when we don't understand what it took God to make us a part of his family. I find, this very, I find this very interesting in verse 11. Do you know the name Onesimus means useful? Did you know that? If you didn't, you should write that down. As a matter of fact, Paul actually articulates it in verse 11, and he does a play on words. And he's saying, listen, Onesimus, he was useless to you before. And aren't we all outside of Christ? How many of you were useless outside of Christ? Me, right? I was good for nothing. I was selfish. 
I, I was vain, right? I was all about me and not about you. And when I was about you, I really was making it about me, and I was trying to get you to do things I wanted you to do. So even when I was about you, I was really about me anyway, right? I mean, that's the most useless thing you've ever heard, isn't it? And that's exactly what we're dealing with with Onesimus. Right? He was useless. I mean, he robbed his family, he ran away, he went to Rome, and he, and he disrupted an entire congregation and their family. And he said, I know he was useless, but now he is useful. That is, when we have a grace and peace from God, we become useful instruments for the glory of God. And you and I, just like Onesimus, became an opportunity for God's glory to be displayed. But it didn't just happen overnight, you, re- you realize. Right? Onesimus had to go. He had to go from Rome a thousand miles to Colossae for something really important to happen. And I want you to know that, and I want this to, to preach to your heart and your life today because, because reconciliation is so important, it's not going to be easy. Right? If reconciliation was easy, we wouldn't even need to talk about it because it's something you would do. I don't preach to you about breathing. I don't preach to you about blinking. I don't preach to you about sleeping. You just do those things. Right? You're going to do those things because they're easy. There are things that aren't easy that we need to preach on and we need to talk about because they're so important and they're difficult. But what you've got to do is you've got to trust God's sovereignty. You gotta, and that's a big word, all right, sovereignty. That means God reigns over everything, right? And for you, you need to trust in God's sovereignty even in the midst of broken relationships because I want to show you something that when I'm going to tell you Paul trusted in the sovereignty of God in the midst of sin. Look, look at verse 15. Paul is addressing Philemon, and he's saying, Here's, I think I know the reason why Onesimus stole from you and ran from you. Did you, did you just hear the, the craziness that just came out of my mouth right then? Right. Paul literally is saying, here's why I think he stole from you, ran away from you guys, and created problems. For this, perhaps, is why he parted from you for a while. Very nice way to say he stole from you and ran away. Right? That you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. God's sovereignty, Paul recognized that all those bad things happened uh, and culminated into the glory of God if we would just allow it. That if you and I would just take our hands off of it, right, calm down a little bit, look at our communal connection that we have, look at what's at stake in the good news of the gospel, we can too, through the difficulty of making bad relationships good, in mending the broken relationships, in handling disagreements, in disputes, in division, if we would just trust in the sovereignty of God and recognize that it's going to be a work and it's going to be a job, and you may not have to walk a thousand miles, but it's going to feel like it. And if you would trust in God's sovereignty and do this, point number two, and prepare to reconcile with others. You need to prepare to reconcile with others. And you may be someone in here, you have a whole long list. Like You're like, I know it, i got to do it. You already have 50,000 people in your mind that you need to go reconcile with. You could be the other person that, that right now you're sitting in your seat, and you say, I don't have a single person to reconcile with. And I've said, just give it seven days. Give it seven days, you're going to have somebody on that list. You're going to have probably three people on that list. And your job, much like Onesimus, is to make sure that you go and make things right. That you're going to prepare. You don't think Onesimus on a thousand mile journey, which you know how long it takes you to drive a thousand miles on a car? I don't know. Do you? <laughs> a long time. A long time. Okay. Now imagine walking, riding in a carriage, not a nice one, and sailing in a boat, thousand miles. It's going to take you a long time. Onesimus had a long time to think about how this was going to pan out, and he was hoping for to be refreshed and given rest by Philemon. He was hoping that grace and peace would be extended to him from Philemon, but he wasn't sure. Imagine. And he had to prepare for these things. And all I'm saying is whether you're Onesimus or Philemon or Paul in this situation, you need to prepare to reconcile with other people. It's your job. As a matter of fact, it's your birthright. I want you to flip to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Second Corinthians 5, 18 through 19, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth about how God has saved them and what their responsibility is in light of that great salvation. Verse 18, 
all this, all the salvation, right, all the work has been done, right, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Ministry, another one of those words, it's hard to understand, isn't it? Ministry, dakinos, it just means servant, right? So what we see here is we have been, since we've been reconciled by Christ, through Christ, he has given us the service of reconciliation, not that he has done when he reconciled us. He's now given us the ministry to give and bestow reconciliation through our mutual connection with other people and our desire to see other people who aren't a part of the community saved. It's all of those things. We have a mutual community. We've got to restore broken relationships in the church and restore people's broken relationships with God outside the church. It's our service of reconciliation, and it's ours. It's our birthright. That is, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That's the call of Christians, right? And if I can't do it in my marriage, and I can't do it with my kids, and I can't do it in my family, how in the world am I going to live out my birthright as a Christian? And do I really understand the gospel of Jesus Christ when I understand that, that he did not count my trespasses against me? but yet I'm counting everyone else's trespasses against me. If that's you, we don't understand reconciliation. We need to understand that although while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, he reconciled us to himself, not counting our sins against them, but instead of doing away with us, he entrusted us something. You want to talk about real reconciliation? It's not just when you say, yeah, yeah, I'm over it. It's saying, hey, we're on the same team now. Let's go do this together. Ah, mutual participation. You see, this, the Bible makes sense, doesn't it? Okay, it's all together. We have an opportunity and a privilege in Christ to be messengers of reconciliation. Now, I say that because there was a group who disagreed with this, right? There was a group who didn't want anything to do with that. And I want to show you what Paul says to those people in the next chapter. 2 Corinthians 6. Go to 2 Corinthians 6. Look at verses 11 through 13. 2 Corinthians 6, 11 through 13. Paul continues, because there's people in the church who choose not to reconcile or not to, uh, not to accept the reconciliation of Christ. And here's what he says. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our hearts are wide open. And he says in verse 12, you are not restricted by us. What he's saying this is, I've given you the truth. I've given you the truth of the gospel. I've given you the truth of the need for reconciliation. We have just been transparent and open with you in all things regarding God and Christ. But here's what he says. You are restricted by your own affections. You know why you don't reconcile? You know why, number one, if you're not a Christian, you know why you don't reconcile with God? If If you are a Christian and you know why you're not reconciling with other people? Because you're so full of yourself right now that you won't do it, right? You're so driven and restricted by your own emotions, your own affections, and your own selfishness that you will not reconcile because you're restricted by your own affections. We need to sit with that for a minute because you're not not reconciling because you have a godly reason not to. There is. There's no godly reason not to reconcile. You aren't withholding reconciliation because you're trying to be the broker of holiness Right? You're, I mean, when you withhold reconciliation, right, you're restricted by your own affections. It's by your own desires, your own will. You know what Paul's childish conclusion to this is? His childish, uh, his, uh, childish uh, here's how you can fix this. Look at verse 13. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. It's pretty elementary, isn't it? Widen your heart. Can you widen your heart? No, but you know what it means, don't you? You need to love more. You need to understand the love of God more. You need to understand that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How could you not forgive other people? Widen your heart. Learn the love of God. Love other people more. Love other people better. Love yourself less. Love other people more. What you need to do, and this is what I do a lot, and I, this is one of the best exercises I've done since I was a Christian, right? I measure my sin against God's sin. How much has God sinned? Some people seem to question that. How much did God sin? Zero times. Okay, so when I measure my sin against God's sin, who, who's, who's the loser? Me, right? I lost. And so already, I'm not the most holy one because God is, so I'm already losing, okay? And then what I want to do is I'm going to measure my sin against myself, Versus my, uh, someone else's sin against me. 
Right? I'm going to measure my sin against myself versus other people's sin against me. And I find 100% of the time that I have sinned against myself far greater than anyone has ever sinned against me in my whole life. I have done myself wrong more than anyone has ever done myself wrong. I've done so many things to myself that were ungodly and ridiculous more than any other person has ever done in my life. Now, if I understand that I am the sinner in the presence of God and I am the worst problem in my own life, I can prepare to reconcile with others because I wake up and reconcile with myself every day. It's so many of us are too gracious about ourselves, right? You wake up in the morning after you made yourself angry and you look in the mirror and you say, you're okay. We're going to make this work. I mean, you do it every day. I mean, it's okay. I forgive myself. You forgive yourself, but you don't forgive the person who did something way less to you last week. We got to make sure that we widen our hearts, that we're not restricted by our own affections, our own desires, but that we're pointed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ into the, the, the lane of reconciliation. I want you to notice something in the letter to Philemon from verse 1 to verse 25, and that's how we'll end uh, this morning, is understanding that reconciliation needs godly leadership. Right? Good reconciliation, God, godly biblical rec- reconciliation needs godly leadership at the helm. Right? Calling people to do the very thing that our flesh doesn't want to do. Anybody? Can anybody resonate with that? Godly leadership is necessary. And I want to show you throughout this whole letter how Paul's godly leadership led to the reconciliation of broken relationships in the church. I want you to look at verse 1 and 2. The beginning of Philemon 1 through 2. Verse 1 says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and to Apphia, our sister, which we believe is Philemon's wife, uh, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, which we believe to be Philemon and Aphia's son. And listen to this. And the church in your house. And so already we see uh, who's in this situation, the family and the church. And Paul's addressing it as such. Right? Paul, the leader, is saying, here's everyone who's involved in this, and here's everyone who needs to be reconciled in this relationship. And then Paul as the leader of the Gentile church, had the authority to command Philemon to reconcile with Onesimus. And I want you to see that, verse 8. So we understand we're talking about the church, and Paul is the leader over the Gentile churches. So Paul has all the authority to command reconciliation. And I want you to show you what he does, verse 8. Verse 8, it says, Accordingly, I'm talking to the whole church, I'm talking to Philemon and Onesimus and Archippus and Apphia, I'm talking to everyone. He says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough... In Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for the sake of love, I prefer to appeal to you. I love it. Isn't that just great leadership? That's leadership with the foresight of discipleship. Okay, Paul knows he's old, he's going to die, and more than forcing people to do what he tells them to do, even though it's a good biblical godly thing, right? More than that, he wants them to grow in their faith, right? More than just if, if, if Uncle Paul's around, we have to listen, but wait until he dies, we can do whatever we want, right? Instead of that, he says, listen, I can tell you what to do, but for the sake of love, I want to appeal to you. What I want to do is I want to appeal to the fact that you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. I want to appeal to the fact that you have been saved by the same grace that I've been saved with, and you've been given the same peace that I've been given, and now you can, through the Spirit of God, through that power that he has indwelt into you, reconcile with other people. And I appeal on that, that love, the fact that you have this mutual connection with God and with the Christian church, you can and you will do these things. I love this because he's the leader. I mean, for sure, if anyone in the first century could point their finger at you and say, you better do it, the Apostle Paul was the guy. And yet he reserved that privilege and said, but I want to appeal to you instead. I want you to follow my leadership. Follow my leadership and I'm going to follow you to the path of reconciliation. I love that. But I also want you to look at verse 21. I love that Paul is is thinking in light of leadership and discipleship, but he's also not afraid to put his foot down a little bit. And that's what I want you to see, because anybody who's a part of a church with godly leadership, you're going to have pastors and leaders who appeal to you out of love, who also see the necessity of putting their foot down where their foot needs to be put down. And I want to show you this. Look at verse 21. After he says, I want some benefit from you, I need you to refresh my heart in Christ, verse 21. Confident in your obedience. I love this. He's like, I'm confident you're going to do what what I ask you to do. I'm just confident, i.e., 
you need to do what I tell you to do. Now, listen, he's not done. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than what I say. Isn't that great? You're not just going to reconcile with Onesimus. You're probably going to give him all the money that you kept aside. You're going to make sure he has a great place to live. You might even try to find him a good wife hanging around. And you're going to go far beyond anything that's expected of you. I love this. Verse 22. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. When you read that, you kind of smile until you read it twice, and you understand what Paul's really saying. Paul's saying, and if you don't do it, I'm coming, right? Or you, as a parent, once said, hey, go clean your room, and I'll be up there in 10 minutes to make sure it was done. Uh, that's the attitude in which Paul was t- telling them this. This thing is saying, hey, you're going to do this, and just in case you thought you might not, you will. Okay, and all I'm saying is that was really, really good leadership on Paul's part in such a delicate situation to appeal out of love and to also be able to put his foot down in a loving, godly, authoritative position so that he could allow the church to be unified together. And that is the purpose of godly leadership, which is why you need to point number three on your outline, follow biblical leadership. I mean, this is for all of us, me included, you need to follow biblical leadership. One final verse I want you to, to at least jot down. You don't have to flip to it. Acts 20, 28. Acts 20, 28. When it comes to following biblical leadership, you need to understand why biblical leadership is even in place. Right? Paul, in chapter 20, verses, uh, around verse 28, in this pericope, in this section of Scripture, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders right? in Miletus, or, or in the Greek, presbyteros. Right? And, and all these words that we're going to talk about are all pointing towards one person in the church, or one group of persons in the church called what we call pastors. You can call them elders. You can call them, you can call them presbyters, whatever you want to call them. These are all the same words pointing to one, they're all three different words, pointing to one office in the church, one group of of men. And, and here, Paul's talking to the Ephesian presbyteroses, the elders of the church, and he says this, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the poimen. That's a funny word. Does yours say poimen? Yours probably says flock, doesn't it? Poimen is the Greek word for flock, or we would say shepherd. Poimen is the Greek word for shepherd, and that word there points to the fact that the leaders of the churches are shepherds. And we get the word pastor from the Greek word shepherd. And so you are, are, understand that your leadership in your church is pastors or shepherds. And the job uh, for pastors is to pay careful attention to yourself, our own lives, and to all the church, all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos, right? there's that word for you, episkopos is overseers. So when you call your pastors overseers, it's strange, but yes, it's biblical, okay? Uh, the Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You see, the job of the church, according to Acts 20, 28, or the, the pastors, your leaders of the church, is to oversee the church, shepherd the church, and administer the church. And that is the goal of your pastors, and that's why it's important to follow biblical leadership. And that's the reason, even in the apostolic age in the first century, it was so important for Philemon, for Onesimus, and for all the church in Colossae to follow the biblical leadership, not only in Philemon, but in Colossians, the whole letter to the Colossians. The reason we have letters in the New Testament is because of biblical authority. It's because there were men in the first century that God had set apart for ministry, and they wrote the account of their leadership and the call for God on the life of the early church, and therefore we have been given the Bible. It's very important for us to understand it didn't just stop there. Now, the good news is special revelation stopped. We have all of the revelation of God in a Bible. If anyone ever tells you there's more special revelation out there, walk away. All right, You have all of it, and it's sitting in your hands by the grace of God. But he's also given us, in Acts 20, 28, Shepherds, overseers, elders, to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, to care for the church. You can underline that. To care for the church, if you flip there, to care for the church of God, which Christ obtained with his own blood. Right? I bring this up because I'm telling you, you're not going to want to reconcile. Thank God for Paul and thank God for godly leaders who call people to reconcile. When you get in here and your marriage is struggling, your pastor's going to call you together in a room and they're going to reconcile things. Okay? Uh, your kids haven't talked to you in years, or maybe you're the kid and you haven't talked to your parents in years. You're part of the same church. We get you inside of the same room and we 
reconcile. Right? Something bad happened in your church between a couple of parties. We get you together and we... A couple of people got it. That's good. Maybe another hour we'll get it. It's important to follow biblical leadership because biblical leadership is important because God has put it in place to ensure unity and to ensure the ministry of reconciliation transcends our generation to the next generation to the next generation. First, with our relationships reconciled to God, and secondly, our relationships reconciled to one another. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we wrap up this morning's worship, we wrap up the the preaching of your word, that it would not come back void as as your word promises, that as it's preached, God, it it is exacted to change lives. Uh, It will, God, uh, bear fruit, and we pray that it would. God, whether it is that we ourselves need to be reconciled with you, whoever is in this room, that if they have never turned from their sins and trusted in you, and they never even heard of the idea of turning from their sin and trusting in you, that they would, and they would come to know you as who you truly are, the only true God, uh, God, the only holy one who has uh, stepped inside of time and space to uh, be the substitute for our sins. But God, for those of us who have, I just pray that reconciliation becomes a mark in our lives where we are so quick to reconcile, that we are so quick to uh, restore broken relationships. And God, that we also see the need for good, good godly leadership in the church to broker a lot of that, to uh, sustain and maintain the, the reconciliatory work of, of the church and the ministry thereof. And I pray, God, as you have pastors here, I pray that you would bring more, more and more pastors here to uh, raise up, to uh, equip the saints for the work of ministry, to keep us focusing on the main thing. And we just pray, God, as we continue walking in faithfulness, that you would, uh, God, be glorified and the church would be edified. Let me pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.